Well, hello, online community. It's great to see you. My name is Mike Quinn, in case you don't know me. I am the now serving as the interim lead pastor, but my wife, Teresa, and I founded the Church New Break a long, long time ago. <laughs> and we've been on a great journey ever since. But this weekend, I get to bring to you the great chapter four. And it's all about this amazing story of revelation, kind of like our lives in general. We're always sort of experiencing revelation on one uh, kind of level or another. This particular time in my life that I experienced a lot of revelation was uh, in uh, November of uh, 2019. I had just come back from a trip to the Holy Land and I uh, came back to a cancer diagnosis of my prostate. And so I started entering places that I didn't want to go and didn't want to be. <laughs> And, but I had to. And, and so anyway, one of the things, the complexities of my anatomy was that I had historically had a bladder condition called interstitial cystitis, very rare in men. Uh, only 10% of all cases in America are male. And of all cases of interstitial cystitis, only 1%, whether male or female, had what were called or are called Hunter's ulcers, H-U-N-N-E-R-S. And Hunter's ulcers are kind of like having a bleeding ulcer inside of your bladder. So it made my life very miserable for many years. Had to go through all th kinds of procedures and so forth. And what happened with the prostate cancer, pretty much anything that they would do to my prostate would totally nuke my bladder, uh, rendering it quite useless. And so they decided here at Sharp, uh, where I go here in Sharp, San Diego, they had decided to uh, farm me out, if you will, to a world-famous uh, doctor. In fact, I want to show you a picture of him. His name's Inderbeer, uh, Inderbeer, Inderbeer Gill. He's a urologist, he's a surgeon, he's an oncologist, and he's the head of urology at USC. And so they farmed me out to Inderbeer. And obviously this was a very scary time in my life and Teresa's life. Um, and what happened was I began to interact with Inderbeer and a man named Dan, who was also a doctor but worked for Inderbeer at USC. And they were specialists in what I needed to have done. And what I needed to have done was I needed to have surgery. And this surgery, by the way, took place on tax day. <laughs> April 15th, I'll never forget it. A tax day in 2020, <laughs> kind of crazy. And it was straight up COVID, okay? So before then though, I have to go up to USC a few times and meet all the staff and everything. And, and Dan, uh, Inderbeer's assistant, if you will, was a total Christian. He goes to a Korean Christian church up in, uh, by USC somewhere and just an amazing man of God. And he and I kind of got to know each other. And through him, he got to find out that I was a Christian and that in fact I was a pastor. And he said that Inderbeer was super excited to meet me, which then made me really want to go meet Dr. Indivere. And so I'll never forget, we met a couple times, but the, the one time right before the surgery, uh, I asked Indivere as we were kind of getting ready, and by then I'd found out about uh, Tanya, his, um, his daughter, who was also a urologist, also a doctor, who had just contracted leukemia. And it was really rocking Indivere's faith, because they were Hindu. And so in that context, I asked Inderbeer, I said, hey, would it be okay if my wife and I prayed for you? And we had oil in our, our I had it in my pocket. And so, so he goes, okay. And he, so I anointed him with oil and Dan and Inderbeer and Teresa and I prayed in his office. And he like totally broke down in tears. It was extremely moving for him and just an incredible place, an incredible place. And the reality is in our lives, God is always kind of calling us to places that we don't necessarily want to be. 
Now, we're going to go in the Bible. We're going to go to John chapter 4, so you guys can turn there with me in your Bibles. And you're going to see this story about primarily, there's the disciples also and the town folk, but we're going to focus primarily on uh, the Samaritan woman, as she is called, and Jesus. And he's, going, he's traveling from the south to the north, and he's going through Samaria, uh, which a, a, you know, a righteous Jew would never do. But Jesus feels called there, and we'll see it. We'll see it. And in this story, you and I are really often vacillating between being relating to Jesus and relating to the Samaritan woman. So as I'm reading the story, and I'll unpack it as we go, but I want you to pay attention to like, where are you and who are you um, as I read it, all right? And really, this is about what does Jesus want us to know and to see, okay? To know and to see. In fact, if you're taking notes, write the word see. I only have no in your outlines, but write the word C down there, okay? Because you'll see as we go along why I want it there. So it says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, and you heard last week, those are the religious leaders, the elite, if you will, and not all Pharisees were bad, but many were. Uh, very legalistic, very rigid, very anti-openness uh, to the Messiah, at uh, least as it relates to Jesus. <laughs> so when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then John throws in this little parenthetical comment, which is really interesting. He says, though Jesus himself was was not baptizing, but his disciples were. I just find that fascinating. Just, I don't know, it's just an intriguing fact. He left Judea and went again to Galilee. So he's leaving Judea in the south, going to the north. He had to, notice this now, he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was worn out from his journey, and he sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, that's important. We'll talk about it in a minute. A woman of Samaria. Now, women almost always went to the wells in a group. And not at noon. We'll talk about that. Uh, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a, a drink, Jesus said to her. Because his disciples had gone into town to Sychar and uh, to buy food. And then the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samarians. So here's the Samaritan woman schooling Jesus, which is kind of cute and adorable, especially in this culture. And I want to give you a little bit of in insight into the Samaritan culture, okay? So let me rewind to like 970 BC, long, long before this. Uh, the, the time when the southern kingdom of Judah had split from the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had all kinds of issues, both governmentally and religiously or spiritually, as a result of this schism. And, as, and one of the things that happened was in the north, they began to build high places or holy places or kind of temples, if you will, because they didn't want their people to travel to the south and do worship in Jerusalem, which all Jews did. And so they start to kind of have these other places of religion where they push their people to go, Mount Gerizim being one. And so the people started to become corrupt in terms of their spirituality 
spirituality. And as time went on, they became very syncretistic with other world religions of the time. So in other words, they started marrying and merging their faith with uh, the Babylonian faith ultimately, or the Assyrian faith before them, because the Assyrians conquered them in 722 BC. So there's all this sort of spiritual gobbledygook that's going on in Samaria that the Jews don't like at all, and the Samaritans don't like the Jews because of this pressure. So it's a, it's a big, big thing. And Mount Gerizim was key to it. Anyway, look at verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, she said, uh, I'm sorry, sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? A traveler, a pilgrim would, would commonly have a leather um, bag, pouch for lack of a better word, with a, like a leather line attached to it. That's how they would get water. That's how they would lower this, what become a bucket, down into a well and then pull the bucket up. And Jesus didn't have one. Uh, anyway, so she said, um, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? Now, remember John's gospel uh, purpose. It's to be uh, clear about who Jesus is. Revealing Jesus as the Messiah, as the unique son of God, all the way through his gospel. So we're starting to see this with the Samaritan woman, which is just really, really cool. Uh, like last weekend, you learned about being born again and the necessity of being born again. And who was that conversation with? That's right, Nicodemus. Good, that's very good. Anyway, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this water will, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well, a, a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Life. Then the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water again. Now she's doing the same thing Nicodemus did with the born again idea in the last chapter. She's kind of literalizing it, if you will. Jesus isn't talking about water like the water that's in my cup. He's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about the water that gives eternal life. And then Jesus does something super cool here. Um, now this is uh, from a New Testament perspective looking at this because in the New Testament with the era of the Spirit you have all of the different spiritual gifts and Jesus walked in all of the different spiritual gifts. But remember he's fully God and fully human as he lives his life. So he is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He has to discover things from the Father and from the Spirit. And so you see this all through Jesus' ministry and so forth. Having said that, he has either some kind of prophetic word or some kind of word of knowledge is taking place here because he says this, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. And then she said, I don't have a husband. She answered. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly and said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, for you have had, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What's Jesus doing? What's Jesus doing? What's he want us to know? What's he want us to see about himself and ourselves? 
himself and ourselves. And the, one of the most important things in this passage is that Jesus is on a mission to meet us. He's on this mission to meet us. He, he and, and, and again, I want you to see something that this is true of Jesus all the time. It's true in your life right now. Like, I don't know where exactly you are. You may be in your car watching this. You may be sitting on your couch watching this. I don't know where you are. You may be at a laptop watching this. But what's happening right now, you did not simply pull out your laptop to watch this message. Yes, you did because you have free will. But there's also the sovereignty of God. Jesus is on a mission to meet you. He always is. He's on a mission to meet me. We call them divine appointments. It's true lots of times in our lives. In fact, I would say most of the times in our lives. And this is the why of our life. And see how Jesus, or John, really puts it. He had to travel through Samaria. He had to travel through Samaria. See, in your life and in my life, every day there are opportunities that you have to travel to that place. That's Samaria. That's Samaria, the place you work, your neighborhood, your uh, church experience, your whatever. When you go shopping, every place can be a Samaria. Shopping's in fact a good one because I hate shopping. <laughs> I don't like shopping. But as soon as I switch gears in my head and shopping is no longer getting a bunch of groceries but rather meeting people in the grocery store to share my faith and to disciple them then I don't mind shopping nearly as much it makes kind of like everything it makes going to an oncology appointment at USC different fundamentally different now you have to get that this is something that Jesus wants you to know and you, you are never an inconvenience to Jesus now, in our brokenness, we want to be Jesus, right? Now, some of you are here and you haven't begun your relationship with Christ yet. You're watching online and maybe you've been watching for a while. Maybe you just happened to hit this uh, sermon. But, but God's doing something inside of you. So you're not, you're, you haven't been born again like we saw last week in that message. And if you haven't seen that message, I would encourage you to go back to last week's message after this and watch it. So some of us have not been born again yet, but we're on this journey. We're on this journey toward Jesus, right? But I'm just saying, you're never an inconvenience to Jesus. He's always wanting to show up in your life. He's always wanting to show up in my life. And then once you become a Christ follower, he's wanting us to always show up in others' lives. This is so, so important. You, see, you and I, in our brokenness, it, it may be like an inconvenience to us, but that's where we have to switch gears. We have to switch gears. Walk with purpose in our lives. Walk with purpose. Look at the passage again. Uh, John 4, 6 through 7. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, no doubt, because it takes a long time to get from, you know, down in Jerusalem up to Samaria. It is the adjoining nation, but it still takes days to get there. And it's hot and it's hard walking. Anyway, he says, he says uh, Jesus was worn out from his journey. He sat down at the well, and it's about noon, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Now, it's noon because this woman is actually, in their context, an extremely broken, immoral woman who's been through many husbands and now living with a guy. So she's there at noon because uh, she's rejected. She's a major inconvenience to her own people. She, she is not liked. 
And like I said earlier, women would go to the well in a group. And they wouldn't go at the height of noon. They would, you know, noon it's hot. <laughs> they don't make that trek in the noontime, okay? <laughs> they just don't do it. And while she's trying to get away from people, God was going out of his way to get to her. Do you see it? God's always going out of his way to get to you. That's his heart. And as we become more like Jesus, we go out of our way, like we'll... We'll do stuff even though uh, we're, I don't know, tired or, or sick or whatever. We'll do stuff because we feel the Lord's leading that he wants us to do this or be there and be in that space. Like in, and this is why, see, because Dan Park, Indebeer Gill's uh, doctor or assistant, he lived this way. He was so fun to meet. Like he lived missionally. USC was his Samaria. Like, for, full on. Everybody knew him. Like, when I walked down the hallway with them, everybody said hi to Dan. Everybody said hi to Inderbeer. But even Dan, I mean, like, and you could tell there was this. In fact, Inderbeer said, <laughs> who's Hindu, on his way to Jesus, okay, because Dan's been discipling him for a long time. Inderbeer said to me and to Teresa, oh, in front of Dan, he said, oh, Dan is like the pastor of this uh, hospital. <laughs> that's how he that's how he operates and I immediately knew what he was saying <laughs> now I want you to think about this question like have you ever felt that you were an inconvenience to God and I listed some questions that might help you think about that um, like a shame from a sin in the past that can be a big big thing in us where we feel like we're inconvenient to God this often comes from some sort of parent wound where growing up you you know you did something bad and, and then your parents shamed you and then you were just sort of stuck in the shame cycle uh, or guilt from a sin in the present uh, obviously that became real time like when it happened and you got caught usually <laughs> whatever <laughs> you can think backward when you're a teenager like a middle schooler you know it was always been when you got caught you're like uh oh <laughs> but then I put a couple more I put a couple more I put a shame uh, because you keep on struggling with the same sin the same sin that that goes on in our lives a kind of besetting weakness as the apostle Paul calls it or following a spiritual path that's no longer working maybe that's you you're you know uh, and by the way I've met a lot of people in life along my way who they say in so many words they say I've tried Christianity and it didn't work that's because they didn't really get into Jesus of the scriptures and the actual church body they kind of explored it a little bit and it, it, they, but they never really applied it they never began the relationship with Jesus they never had the spirit of, of God invade them they they just it doesn't they haven't they haven't done not the right things but they they just haven't tried actual Christianity they maybe got stuck because of some mean person in a church there's a million reasons people get stuck and don't go further but in in life what was happening is his Hindu faith was not working he was getting stuck right here and in Hinduism uh, they believe in what's called karma you've probably heard of that karma is a very very harsh harsh worldview I know that you know even me when I was a young hippie I, I would use that word but I didn't really understand what that meant okay like karma's a bummer Karma's a bummer because karma says, and it's, there's a biblical part to it, what you sow, you reap. 
What you sow, you reap. If you do bad, then you reap bad, okay? But there's no grace, so to speak, in Hinduism. So it's really, really negative. And so from a Hindu worldview, Indabir believed that his daughter had leukemia because of something either he did or she did or his grandparents did. And that's karma. And it's really, really like guilt and shame on steroids and their spiritual faith was no longer working. This is why they became open to the gospel. They, they started to get out and Dan was so crucial to it and I got to play this small role and that's why nobody except Jesus will ultimately satisfy. This is what he wants us to know and see. He wants Indebird to know it. He wants you to know it. He wants everybody in your world, in your Samaria to know it. Nothing other than Jesus will ultimately satisfy. Jesus says in the passage, he says, such a great section of scripture, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. Notice the language. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, this is not, um, it would be probably, the, the Samaritan woman would not recognize it probably per se, but all Jews would recognize what Jesus is doing. He's doing a kind of, this is a very, very famous biblical idea of this living water and eternal life. It's a famous theme in scripture in the book of Isaiah. It's there in the book of Jeremiah, in the Psalms, in Zechariah. It's all over the place. This is a very, so Jesus is taking this idea from the Old Testament and he's applying it to himself. But only Jesus can satisfy. Only he can give us this water, which begs the question, what am I trying to fill that only Jesus can fill? Like, think about it. Right now, wherever you are, what are you trying? And this is a struggle even when you're Christ follower, okay? I struggle with this too. Like one of my big besetting uh, sins is anxiety. I worry a lot. It's sort of hooked to my adrenalization process and kind of the psychosomatics of my body, my neuroplasticity. It's, it's, it's locked into kind of who I am. So I have to work on it all the time. And I do believe, even though much of my physical pain is from surfing for 45 years and eating it, many, many times and having lots of fun. But the reason my thumbs hurt is, and I don't have any more joints in there is just because of surfing and, and my back and my lower back and my middle back and my upper back and I have a compression fracture of L1 and my hips hurt all the time. Okay, that's true. But I also know because studies will show me that my anxiety is tied to my chronic pain. And my chronic pain is tied to my anxiety. And this is one of the things Jesus has been teaching me for like probably 10 years at least. And so the problem with chronic pain is it runs under the radar a lot. It doesn't always um, surface where you know, where you, you're kind of connecting the dots, like live in a day. In my case, I'll just get grumpier. <laughs> I'll just get mad. Not over anything in particular. It's not like somebody's doing something to, that really ticks me off on a normal day or whatever. Uh, it's just that I have this pain that I, I'm running through, and then I have anxiety, which is, you know, they're like bedfellows a little bit. And so then, before I know it, I'm not walking in, you know, the ways of Jesus, like the fruit of the Spirit, peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, and all that. I'm running on empty, right? <laughs> I'm running on empty. This is why the spiritual disciplines are super important to me and you. 
by spiritual disciplines, I mean like your daily devotions, your time in scripture, your time in prayer, your time seeking the spirit, your time memorizing scripture, your time meditating on scripture, your time worshiping. All of those spiritual disciplines are very, very important to having Jesus fill us up. And if I, just in my case, like if I don't, and I struggle with my devotions, like, like, you know, I have to keep them virile. But if I, if I let them grow cold, in a couple of days I start to, and again, I know I'm, I, I worry and I know I have pain, so maybe it's that. But I'm just saying, in a couple of days, I go sideways, okay? That's, that's what, now be careful of the legalism of the spiritual discipline. Don't, don't make them rules and stuff, you know? Keep your devotional life fresh. Change it up, whatever. But have it. Just like exercise. You need, to, you need to work out. Well, I don't like a gym. Get over it. <laughs> Just deal with it. I didn't like a gym either. I like to surf. But when I hit my mid-40s, I could no longer keep up in the surf with the young guys because I was getting in less shape physically. So I joined, actually, Teresa, my wife, uh, gave me a gym membership. And from that point forward, I've been in a gym unless I'm in surgery and that's really a mess. So anyway, let's go back to the story. Remember the five husbands and the one she's living with. So we're going to go to, uh, what is it, verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She's talking about Gerizim. But you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now, I think this is very funny, actually. I think it's cute. Because I do it all the time when I'm talking to God. She's trying to change the subject. She doesn't like where this conversation's going. He's starting to press, Okay. So she's changing the subject. And then Jesus drops the mic. He says, and, and again, in a rabbinic first century Jewish context, this is radical, radical for him to say this. Jesus tells her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. So shocking for a rabbi to say this. I mean, it's never said. <laughs> you Samaritans worship what you do not know. That'd be like a Hindu, uh, like Indivir. Indibir, he's worshiping some, well, they have a, they're polytheistic Hindus, so they have gods for everything. In fact, every family has a god that's like the personal god, but then they have tons of gods. Um, anyway, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. He's talking about both himself, obviously he's Jewish, but also chronologically, God way back in the day chooses the Jews to bring the gospel through and uh, win the world. Anyway, he says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. So he's kind of, you know, spinning her out here, if you will. He's talking about a place, not a place, but a posture. A posture, like your posture of worship. Uh, your, the, the heart of your worship. Not the, not the, although it's great to bend down and raise our hands. Obviously, all those things are biblical. I'm just talking about the, our, like who we are in our worship. He's talking about a lifestyle. He's not focused on the outside, which we tend to do in our faith. He's focusing on the inside. Jesus is after our heart, our heart. 
Anyway, everyone in Samaria, everyone there is the same way. I put on my outline, everyone in my Samarias is spiritually thirsty. Everyone that you're surrounded with, they may not be aware of it. You're the one who brings it. And you know how you do it? You bring it by being the kindest, the most sensitive person. They can't even figure you out. They've never met anybody like you, except maybe their old grandma or something. But they've never met anybody like you. You're like the most sensitive person. You ask these amazing questions. You listen. You're just, and, and then you're building this relational discipleship capital around you uh, with them. And then eventually uh, you tell them who you are a little bit. A little bit. And you can do this anywhere. Every time I golf, I used to do it when I surfed. I had to quit surfing last year. When I was young, 69. Anyway, <laughs> but now I can only golf. I do it every time I golf. I like actually to play as a single because then I got three people, three Samaritans for nine holes or however long I have them. And I want to be like the nicest, kindest. I want to pay attention to golf etiquette. I want to break it down, make them super comfortable because they're usually, you know, mediocre and whatever. And I make it safe for them. I tell them, hey, if you want to hit two balls, hit two balls. I don't care. I'm just playing for fun. In fact, I don't even really keep score. I'm just, I'm just uh, practicing. So I, I, I have this technique that I do every time I golf. It's super cool and super effective. Um, I got to do it last week with uh, two Korean people, both doctors uh, at Mission Bay Golf of course, and I got to help them uh, through nine holes and talk to them about what they do and what they're here for and got to talk to them about new break and coming to church and it was super cool. I get to do it all the time, all the time. It's just radical. And again, everybody around you is thirsty. You just have to be the one who helps them, like thirsty, like when somebody's thirsty, if you give them, a, you know, like if you're drinking a like nice legit cup of water like this, and then you say, oh, would you like some? <laughs> That's the way you disciple. That's the way you disciple. It's awesome. And then Jesus frees us. Jesus frees us. He sets us free. And this is something super important that he wants us to see. Look at, look at verses 25 and 6. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, and this is super important here. I, the one speaking to you, am he. I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, I need to nerd out a little bit with you just because you got to see this. In the Gospel of John, there's seven occasions of this happening. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written primarily in uh, Hebrew. However, uh, eventually in history, in the Old Testament history, it gets translated into Greek, especially as Greek becomes the lingua franca or the language of the day, you know, as Alexander conquers the world. And so anyway, the, the, the New Testament is uh, translated into Greek. And in the Greek language, when Moses uh, says to God, who shall I say is sending me? God uses this exact phrase. In the Greek, it's called ego emi. Ego emi. And it means I am. I myself am. When Jesus drops this here to the Samaritan woman, he is saying to her, I am the Messiah sent from heaven. 
I am the one that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament roll up into. I am the one. I am the son of God. And you got to understand who he's saying it to. He's saying it to a Samaritan woman who's got five ex-husbands and a current live-in at a well, for crying out loud, in the middle of nowhere. So what's he doing? He's pulling the possibility of condemnation coming off of her and all the shame of her past. And it would be visceral for her. This would be so powerful for her. She can't even believe it. And there's a verse that I just want to share with you. It's from Paul's uh, letter to the church at Rome. And it's a very, very famous verse for you who are either considering the gospel or, you know, uh, already have accepted Christ. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. Jesus has set you free. Oh, sorry, because of the law, because the law of the spirit of the life in Christ. Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what's happening in this woman right now. That's why look at what she does next. The very next thing. Uh, then, the woman, uh, then the woman left her water jar and went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then I want you to skip down to verse 39. We're just going to read a few more verses here. It's just such a great story. And, and look at how this Samaritan woman is already starting to lead like Jesus. Nicodemus didn't do this in chapter 3. He does it later, but Nicodemus didn't do it. This woman does it. This Samaritan woman. She, look at what she does. She already flipped the switch. She's like Jesus in her Samaria. Watch. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman had said when she testified. He, she testifies. He told, that, that's by the way where um, a lot of church culture gets this word testimony. Uh, so she testifies. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them which is just trippy. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he had said. Uh, since you have heard for, uh, sorry, because of what he had said, verse 42, and they told the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior. I mean, how cool is that? That is just so cool. And I believe in, um, uh, in uh, Tanya's case, uh, I believe Dan told me that before she died, by the way, she died, um, uh, I was there in April, she died the next January. So it'd be January of 21. And it became a very, very famous story because they're famous people, but she died. But Dan told me that she had begun her relationship with Christ before she died. And so here you have this dad, and now I've lost touch with Dr. Gill. I don't, I, you know, I just don't have the way to connect with him anymore. But that's, that's the way it is. Now we're all this way. We're all this way. We're all to be like the Samaritan woman. We're all to be like Dan Park, like Tanya. Like this is the way our life is. So what is it that you need freedom from today? Like in your life. Is it, now it may be again, just the Samaritan woman. It may be some other, you know, like we're not walking with Christ yet. It may be that you're, you're, you're walking with Jesus, but you're just still, and we all do this, uh, trying to fill that vacuum with um, something besides Jesus and something beside his ways. Um, but, but it also could be purposelessness. 
which I believe is the biggest sin in American church, purposelessness, where you really haven't shared your faith. You really don't get that you are surrounded by people that you're called to disciple. So let me pray for us. Just bow your heads, wherever you are, just bow your head and close your eyes. So Lord, I I pray for everybody who's listening to this message. Lord, I pray particularly for those who uh, are, are in this process of coming into faith with you, Lord. I pray that as they confess their sinfulness right now and just give themselves to you simply, just just turn away from their broken past. We're trying to fill their lives with everything on the earth that it has to offer. And turning to you, you are the Messiah. You are the I am. You are the one. You are the, the one who comes from heaven to earth. You are the one who dies ultimately on the cross for our sin. And you are the one who raises from the dead on the third day. And you are the one who 40 days later ascends into heaven. You are the one who loves us beyond our wildest dreams. So for those who are doing that, I I pray, God, that you'll just speak that into them. And for the others of us who are trying to fill uh, empty voids with whatever. It could be a drug. It could be uh, some sort of immorality. It could be, I don't know, money. It could be anything. It It could be even good things like surfing or golf that have become too important in our lives. Whatever, it could be anything. Lord, show us that and forgive us for those things, those things that can distract. Help us to be balanced. Balanced, Lord, where we enjoy ourselves and keep missional, keep missional wherever we are. And that's the third area, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to repent from the sin of purposelessness. We will stop saying, oh, Joe over there, he'll disciple Lou or whatever. No, we will start to disciple. We will get it. All of our conversations are discipleship. We're always discipling. We're either discipling poorly or or well. So help us to disciple well, Lord. Help us to be the kindest, most gracious, most um, selfless people that the people at work ever meet, the people in the neighborhood ever meet. Help us to be led by your spirit. Holy Spirit, fill us and lead us by your spirit so that we can be your hands and feet, your mouth, your ears, your eyes on the earth. Help us to see your kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.